Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here in a very quiet Westminster today as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Joshua Gersler. Joshua is the Chartered Financial Planner at The Orchard Practice, a financial advisor specialising in mortgages, pensions, protection and investments. Uh, Joshua, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the programme today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Absolute pleasure. Now, um, Joshua, this podcast, of course, is all about um, leadership, effective leadership at that. And um, that's coming under the microscope, none more so than now with the uh, fallout of the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, no less. Um, Tell me, as a business leader, as it were, how has it been in your industry trying to navigate the last few weeks? Interesting. It's probably uh, putting it mildly. It's, um, It's unprecedented times and we are probably feeling the brunt of it in terms of the impact on clients because we're dealing with people's finances and everyone has been impacted financially. So we are trying to reassure clients as much as we can do anything we can to help, but really just provide information and comfort so they don't have to stress on the things that they can't do anything about. That sounds really proactive. And um, do you have any advice drawing on your experience from the outbreak so far that you couldn't give to other business leaders who are facing difficult situations at this time? I think every business is probably in a different position. So if you are, for example, uh, a leisure business like a restaurant or a cinema where you've had to close your doors, you're facing different challenges to us. Um, in those situations, you've got to make sure you're taking advantage of all the government support that's available to you. Things like 80% of pay for your furloughed staff, things like small government loans. Just make sure you are gathering as much information as possible and taking advantage of things so that you don't have to suffer and that you can still have a strong business when we get out of this, which we will do at some point. Yes, absolutely. Um, looking to the future, of course, um, beyond the outbreak is um, incredibly important. Um, in terms of how the uh, the outbreak, um, however, has been addressed in the uh, the here and now, though, uh, we have seen some quite contrasting approaches, um, haven't we, uh, Josh? Because we've seen the likes of Xi Jinping and Giuseppe Conte over in Italy, for example, who have been very proactive in putting their respective uh, con- countries on lockdown quite quickly. Whereas here in the UK, up until more stringent measures have come in more recently, we were taking a much less hands-on approach. So we had money there, we had procedures in place, but in many ways, we were waiting to see what happens before essentially entering a lockdown ourselves. Um, If we sort of take that away from politics for a moment and away from this time of crisis, as it were, um, which approach would you generally take when dealing with difficulties as a business leader yourself? Would you rather dive straight in, get on top of the situation, or would you let things play out a bit, see how matters develop, and then take the necessary action? Um, So taking it away from this as you said, from the sort of, are you talking about taking it away from the corona situation or? Yes, um, taking that away from times of crisis, taking it away from politics in an everyday situation. Okay, so just general business. Uh, of course, yes. I, I, by nature, am quite a cautious um, person who likes to think about things, who likes to understand the pros and cons of every situation. So I tend to analyse things in detail. But I have realized as I've been in business longer that sometimes you do have to jump in with decisions because you can take so long thinking about things and weighing it up that you miss the opportunity. So you've got to have a balance. And probably the the ideal is to have people around you to support you who will give different views. If you are a cautious 
um, thinking person like me, you probably want someone with you who's a bit more gung-ho with decisions and vice versa. If you're very gung-ho and jumping in with decisions, it'd be helpful to have someone with you who can pull you back a bit and rein you in and make you think about things in more detail. That's interesting because essentially we have um, sort of two things there, don't we? We have um, the importance of the balance for a business leader of being proactive and then being reactive and taking decisions when they have to as things change, but also the dynamic of those around them as well, because more important than anything to recognise here, it is a team effort being a leader of a business. It's not just a one man or one woman show, is it? That's absolutely right. I think, again, that's something as I've been in my career longer, I've come to realise that you can't do everything yourself. Even in a business like ours, which is considered a small business by um, by our country standards, I can't do everything. I have to have people around me and you have to trust other people's judgment, other people's skills um, to do things. So I've got things that I'm good at and I know I'm good at it. There's things that either I'm not good at or I don't like doing, but I know I won't do as well, that I get other people to, to do which they will excel in. That's the key really, have a, have a good support team around you. Absolutely. And we've talked a lot about um, good qualities that um, team members need to have essentially uh, there as well, Josh. Um, but what sort of qualities do you think a great leader needs? What does that word leader essentially mean to you in terms of qualities that they should have? I think a great leader needs to be able to inspire their followers to achieve their best. So it's all very well getting people to do tasks and and jobs and things like that, but it's actually to help people achieve their own potential and be the best version of themselves that they can be. And to get the best out of somebody like that, does that then raise sort of the importance of workplace culture, for example, creating a space where you can get the best out of people and motivate people to do their best as well? Yeah, definitely. When we are looking to recruit and to grow our team, one of the key things is thinking about how those people are going to fit in with the culture that we've developed in our business and the people already in the team. You don't want someone who may be very intellectually clever who doesn't have any people skills. And if you are a business that likes to be nurturing and caring with clients, you don't want someone who is very aggressive with people. So you're absolutely right that it's important to have uh, the right culture in your team. Absolutely. And we talk about culture, we talk about dynamic as well and the qualities that people do need to have. Um, Do you think some of these qualities are just things that people are born with or are they things that can be developed throughout one's life, throughout one's career? Um, I think it's actually, I think it's probably both. So there are natural born leaders, but I don't think there's anything to stop anyone learning how to lead people, how to coach people, how to form a team. You probably need to find someone who inspires you and leads you yourself and learn from them. But I don't see any reason why you cannot learn those skills yourself. Absolutely. It's um, all about, of course, um, that pathway to a development um, and recognising that that's, of course, really important. Um, on the topic of um, great leaders um, as well uh, here, um, Joshua, um, are there any examples of uh, leaders throughout history, living or dead? It can be people of note, people who uh, maybe aren't um, so well known, who've maybe inspired you in your life and your career as well. I think in terms of business, um, there are a few people who sort of helped me along the way. There are probably my biggest inspiration growing up was my father, who I still 
speak to a lot in terms of uh, bouncing ideas off and the way he handled his business. I had in my early career um, at Deloitte, I had a couple of people who really made me understand what you needed to do to progress. Um, There are now, since I've been a financial planner, which is nine, I think about nine years now, there are certain individuals within this profession who actually inspire me to do things here as well. So there are a mixture of people in different areas that I, that I draw on to help me grow and develop personally. And it's quite interesting that you um, talk about examples there from uh, within business as well, because it really brings under the microscope this idea that good leadership, especially in a business context, can quite often go unseen because these aren't necessarily individuals that are constantly in the public eye. Um, With that in mind, do you think that great leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? Probably not. It's probably not um, something you really see. I think in the UK, we have a bit of a problem where we, we we like to knock people down so when people are doing well and people are growing and developing whether that is in a business a sporting environment a um showbiz environment whatever it is i think in the uk there tend to be people that just want to knock people down whether that is jealousy anger or bitterness i don't know so i i don't think we do celebrate people enough in this country and it brings us back to that question of culture, doesn't it? If obviously the culture of the, the country, as it were, almost changes to move more toward that positive side of things, that encouraging people, giving them a pat on the back, then that can change, can't it, in terms of the wider um, outlook on leadership? Yeah, definitely, Scott. I think you're right there. Um, Joshua, I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today. And I think it would be fantastic to perhaps even have you back on in a few months' time just to look at this feature retrospectively and just see how things have played out. So thanks so much for coming on, taking the time to speak with me, especially and address these issues for the, uh, the benefit of the listeners. Um, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus Treskothic for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus Treskothic who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And um, 
you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughn got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test match. i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um mm source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role you know just in terms of because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. I think it was in the 
final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals 
um, think they are perhaps more important than than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think <laughs> they're they're all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment and. Uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um but th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but. What advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on home soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups. And this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night. And it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of 
players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I yeah. actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. 
And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w- what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a 
a declining one over time, even though the br- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.